Solomon says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And then Solomon says, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Thus ends the reading of of the inspired word of God, and as Brian prayed, may he write it on our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, teach us from this passage the truths that this passage teaches us, and may we take them to heart and apply them to ourselves first and foremost. And Lord, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to hear the word as we need to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. According to uh, Christian pollster George Barna, who's done a lot of polls through the years, at this current time in uh, in our nation, only about 1% of American millennials, people under the age of 30, uh, only about 1% of them hold to a biblical worldview. And in in his survey, he had seven different points uh, that would, at least in a minimal way, uh, be... uh, classified as a biblical worldview. Out of that 1%, that only 1% of millennials hold to a biblical worldview, uh, 56% of them claim to be Christians. As someone said, in other words, more than half of the millennials think they're Christians, but they certainly do not think like Christians. Um, What is a biblical worldview? Uh, Well, it starts with uh, your view of God. I'm not going to go through all the seven points, but this is essentially the first point that Barna said is part of a biblical worldview. It starts with a biblical understanding of God himself. God, to to have a true and and biblical worldview, God must be understood to be, among other things, the creator of all things. The eternal, uh, the everlasting God. He must be known as the self-sustaining, almighty, sovereign being who rules over his creation. I want to focus on that word sovereign. What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? In fact, that he is sovereign means essentially that he has the power and the wisdom and the authority to do anything he chooses to do with his creation and all his creatures. 
And there's nothing in the universe that can thwart his plans and actions. We know that there's a battle between good and evil in, going on in the, in the cosmos and in the world. But it's, it's not an even, <laughs> the two sides are not even. Uh, God has the authority to carry out his plans and actions, and nothing can thwart uh, his plan. Uh, to say that God is sovereign is to say that he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass and that he brings to pass whatsoever he ordains. Another way to say it more simply is that God plans his work and he works his plan. And so he controls the world and all the events that occur in time. And he controls the big events, but not just the big events, the small ones. We hear verses like, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your father, not a hair falls from your head. Because without his will and knowledge, he knows all things and controls them. And there's nothing actually insignificant in the plan of God. Ephesians chapter 1 speaks a lot of the sovereignty of God. It says that he's predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God does not consult polls. (laughs) He does not consult you and me. He consults his own wise counsel, and he does and works all things according to that counsel. But not only does he predestine us for salvation, he works out all the events according to that unchangeable and eternal plan. And in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 11, this is what we see. We see God's sovereignty over time and all the events in it, as well as eternity. So I would ask the question, at least from what I've said so far, about that first point of having a biblical worldview, would you say that you do have such a worldview, that you see and you recognize God is the sovereign ruler and he has the right, the power, and the authority and the wisdom to do whatsoever he wills. And he actually does uh, do whatsoever he wills in all the affairs of men. Well, everything around us, I think we would all agree, is, is, is in a state of constant movement and change. Sometimes we might say it looks like chaos. Uh, however, uh, all of the fluctuations and changes around us, for good or for bad, are under his absolute control. We, we don't live in a world of chance or of fate. All events, even human choices... Uh, which we are are all responsible for, all human choices even are ruled and overruled by the will of God. Now, Daniel 4.35 says this. It says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does, God, that is God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Uh, we can't we can't stop uh, God's purpose and plan, uh, much less can we have anything to say against it. We can't argue with his plans um, because he's perfect. In verses one through eight, then Solomon proceeds to give this overview of some of the examples of the times and seasons on earth that God, as the sovereign Lord, has appointed. And in our study, 
uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, thus far we have identified uh, this man's search for meaning and, and how often man searches, like Solomon himself did, uh, for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places, uh, in the creation instead of in the creator, God. And so we see the futility of uh, the way man goes about uh, seeking meaning and purpose. But now Solomon, you see, he's talked a lot about that. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But now he is, he is showing, and, and it's, it's still a little indirect, but, but it's there. Uh, he's showing us in this passage today that, that God has a sovereign purpose for everything uh, that, that takes place in our lives on a daily basis, things that we're all familiar with. For everything, verse 1, there is a season. There's a set and determined season and time. Uh, when everything comes into being, we'll think of the creation of the world. God created the world exactly when he decided to create it. And uh, he created it in the exact number of days that he chose to create. He could have created it in, in one second, one day, but he chose to do it in six days. He created time itself when he made the universe. And, and so he determined the beginning of all things. He will determine the end of all things and everything in between. Solomon said there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time, first of all, to be born and a time to die. I think this is probably the most significant one to think about in this list. But the time of your entrance and the time of your exit from this world uh, these times are fixed and appointed by God. Job recognized this. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God gave you life, gave you birth. There was a time for you to be born. Raise your hand if you had a choice in that, in that decision. Um, uh, and, and, and so he's also appointed the time of your death. And, and there are three great questions generally that people have asked. We should ask these questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Uh, well, you came from the, the purpose and plan of God. You, you were born because God decreed that you would exist and that you would be born uh, into the family uh, that you were born into and the place and time where you were born. Uh, and, and, and so God answers these questions. In his word. And, and, in, and what about, why are you here? Well, you know, you and I are here for the glory and purpose and honor of God. Uh, it, it, you know, we tend to think the world revolves around us, but it does not. Uh, we're here for God's sake, for God's glory, for God's purpose. Now, in that purpose, in fulfilling that purpose, if we align ourselves with God's purpose... We will be happy. We will be joyful. We will experience life abundantly. We know that. And then, of course, in the end, uh, where are we going? Well, we're going to, to stand before God. We're, we're going to meet our maker. We're going to see God. And um, so we're living right now in between birth and death. And the Bible says, of course, that that time period is like a vapor. It's very short. And since God determines the times and seasons of our lives, of our short, very short lives, 
then we need to learn to trust in his all-wise plan for our lives. Um, Psalm 31, uh, David declared this. He says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. So, so are you putting your trust, your confidence in God's sovereign plan for your life? You know, if, if our times are in the hand of God, is, there's really no better place for them to be. There's anything in your life, whether your times, your, anything that, that you are and that you have, it's good to place it in the hands of God. So our times are in his hand. Here's, here's a poem for you. You got three poems last week, only one today. Well, actually two, because first eight verses are a poem. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here's a poem. It says, our times are in thy hand. Oh, God, we wish them there. Our life, our friends, our souls, we leave entirely to thy care. Our times are in thy hand. Why should we doubt or fear? A father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. So God controls the times and events of our lives. Uh, theologians call that the providence of God. And it's not merely a topic for theological discussion. It's a very practical uh truth that we need to meditate on. You see, Solomon sees the providence of God as the solution to, to the meaningless of life, meaninglessness of life. When you begin to feel that your life is empty or, or devoid of purpose, um, remember this, there is a God in heaven who's working all things uh, for your good and for his holy purposes. If God was not working, you know, if first of all, if there's no God, there's no meaning. There is no meaning to life. Um, just not. But if there's a God, but if he's just distant and far away and has nothing to do with our lives in this world, it, it also is rather meaningless. But if there's a God who has his eye upon the sparrow and you and everything else, and if he's controlling all the events, and working them together for your good, well, that means there is purpose. There is meaning to life. In Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon started talking about life under the sun. And he said, it's all vanity. Life under, but here in chapter 3, he begins, he says, he speaks of every matter under heaven. That's, those are two different phrases. Under the sun refers to the you know life on earth without a perspective, uh, 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 without God's perspective. But life under heaven brings God into the picture now, uh, and so life does have purpose because God has a purpose, and is working that purpose out according to His all wise and eternal plan. Well, like I said, verses one through eight are really a poem, uh, and a, a divinely inspired poem, of course. A lot of people have heard these words, but probably most people do not know where they came from. And some of you remember from the song by the birds, right? Uh, turn, turn, turn. Well, it's just basically using the King James Version, uh, verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes, um, which is not a bad thing to put Scripture to music, right? And so uh, in this poem... In Ecclesiastes, the word time is repeated 28 times. Um, 14 pairs of contrasting events. And 14 pairs is 2 times 7. 
Seven is the perfect number. It's the number of completeness. Um, and uh, we, we, we know that, that God uh, rested on the seventh day. There's a lot of sevens in the Bible. I won't go through those, but it represents completeness or totality. On the seventh day, all was completed. All was created. And God stood back and said, it's good. And then he gave us the seventh day uh, as a day of rest. Uh, so these 14 pairs uh, contrasting uh, things, they basically, it's not an exhaustive commentary, but it's basically a representative uh, overview of things that occur in our daily lives. Have you noticed there's a lot of poetry in the Bible? Uh, it's, it's everywhere. When you start to look for it, it's like a lot of things. Someone has said that when you really get hold of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, you begin to read the Bible and you see it everywhere. But you also, if you look for poetry, you'll see it everywhere. The, of course, Ecclesiastes, we find it. The Psalms are all poetry. Uh, we find it. The Song of Solomon is basically poetic. Lamentations has a lot of poetry. It's all around. God seems to like poetry. And since God likes poetry, I thought I'd, I'd give you my poem today. Actually, yeah, I have a third one. Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. God loves poetry, and you should too. Uh, that one will stick with you, right? And that's the thing. Poetry has a way of making things stick in our minds. That's why we can. That's why verses one through eight of Ecclesiastes three are so familiar to us because they're they're put in such a beautiful and orderly way. Poetry really is a reflection of the character of God because God is a God of beauty and he, and he also is a God of order. Now, I know there are poems that are kind of off the wall and don't seem to have any rhyme or reason. Um, whether we want to call those poetry or not, that's up to you. But um, Hebrew poetry is interesting because it is characterized by what we call parallelism. And there's several different types of parallelism, but in, in Ecclesiastes 3, we have what's called antithetical parallelism. And it's just saying that, that the lines of, of the poem provide an antithesis, a contrast, uh, bringing together opposing ideas and putting them before you. And, and it does make you think, right? There, there, there's, there's a time to mourn, but a time to dance. And we ask, well, which is it? You know, and, and when is it? Right now in my life, is it a time to mourn, a time to dance? Well, that, that can change pretty quickly sometimes. But, um, but we're forced to think about these kinds of things, and, and it's good. Good for us to do. Uh, there are seasons and times for everything in life. And some of these seasons are good and pleasant right now, uh, early fall. Temperatures start to drop, but not too much. Uh, this is this is a good and pleasant season, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, and you know, if we had a choice, every season would be sunny, warm, fun, and easygoing. Every season of life, not just the weather. Uh, but life's not always uh, a bed of roses, as as we say. Storms come, hardships come that must be endured. The work of Hard planting must be done if you're going to reap a harvest, and that's true just generally, uh, not just for farmers. Sometimes uh, are times to weep and mourn. We, we don't like to have to weep and mourn, but sometimes we, we must. 
And we all like times of peace, but sometimes war is, is unavoidable. Sometimes we must fight. In the Christian life, that's true. Uh, fight the good fight of faith, Paul said. Uh, we, are, we are in war. We don't have a choice as Christians. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. You know, it's easy to accumulate things, isn't it? It's harder to get rid of things because we, we, we want to hold on. There's a time to love and time to hate. Well, that, that one's kind of difficult because as growing up, you know, our parents told us you should never hate anyone. Well, there are things that God hates, right? Read Proverbs 6, and there's a list of seven things that God hates. If God hates them, you should hate them. Read the list. Uh, it describes a lot of our politicians today. Uh, that's all I'll say there. Uh, one thing we learn from this poem is that we do live, and it reminds us that we live in a fallen, sinful world. Because none of the negative things here, uh, it, it, you know, would be there if we didn't live in a fallen world. It, it, the fact is, you know, uh, death and 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 uh, mourning, loss and war, all that's because of the fall. All that came in because of sin. If Adam and Eve had not sinned and plunged the world into corruption, uh, it would all it would be all happy times. We know that. Um, so so it reminds us of the fallenness of our world. And again, this is one of the things that uh, that politicians often like to forget and just ordinary people, and uh, they want to believe in the goodness of man, but uh, it's, not, it's not the case in reality. So uh, here's another thought, though. Not only do we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world that we have to face the reality of, if we don't face the reality of it, uh, we're not going to get along very well in life. But at the same time, though we live in that sin-cursed world, a fallen world, God is in the business of redeeming that which is fallen and broken. He is still making and doing beautiful things in His world and in our lives. Verse, every, verse 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's another way of saying what Romans 8.28 says, that, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even all those hard things, even all those difficult things. So God brings good out of evil. He brings beauty out of sin. Can you see the beautiful work of God in his world? Can you see the beautiful work of God in your own life? You know, especially if you're in a Reformed church, you know that you're a sinner. <laughs> and sometimes you know it so well that, 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 that to see your sin is as is, uh, is easy as falling off a log because you're always told about it and you always hear about it. And sometimes you don't see the work, the redeeming work that God is doing in your life. But he is at work. And so you need to see that. You need to know it. You need to believe it. That he's up to something in your life that transcends the ugliness of sin and actually turns it on its head. He's conforming you into the image of his son, the Bible says. He's making you beautiful in his sight. In fact... 
He is preparing us, the church, the people of God, to be the bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5.27, as he's been talking about marriage, he's really talking, he says ultimately about Christ and the church. He says, Jesus will present to himself a beautiful bride, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. He is making and beautifying us uh, for that day when we are presented to him as his bride. Well, uh, all this is going to happen, of course, in eternity. There's work going on now, uh, but uh, we, the church, will be his bride and be purified and be beautiful without blemish in eternity. That's why verse 11 continues. Uh, that He says also he has put eternity into man's heart. Deep down, all people know uh, that this life is not all there is. Some people try to say, you know, this, this is it. You die and, it's, and there's nothing else. Uh, life ends. You cease to exist. But deep down, I think we know that there's more. We were made to live forever. There must be something beyond this veil of tears, beyond this suffering. There must be an answer to uh, a life that is full of trials and tears. Well, there is a day, an eternal day of beauty coming when, as the book of Revelation says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And that, that, that's supposed to, to make us think of the return of Jesus Christ, because just the, at just the right time, Jesus is coming back. And the heavens will be rolled back like a scroll, as the hymn says. The trump will sound and the Lord will descend in the clouds of God's glory. And it will happen at the time of God's appointing. That will be a day of all beauty, all joy. But there was a time also for Christ's first coming into the world. A time for His birth. If we go back to that first line of the, of the poem. There's a time to be born, a time to die. The angels, the shepherds rejoiced at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This wonderful news. And Scripture says that Jesus was born at just the right time. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So with Jesus, there was a time to be born. It was just the right time. God's time. But also a time... For him to die. He died at God's appointed time. You remember how often people, his enemies, tried to kill him. They tried to have him put to death and take his life, but it always the Bible always said, but his hour had not yet come. And when that hour did come, Christ gave his life voluntarily. No one he said takes it from me, but I give it of myself, my own decision at the Father's perfect time. He was led to the slaughter. He died that we might live. And he rose again at the right time too. He said, after three days, I will rise. Perfect timing. Jesus was always and is always on time. Jesus always knew what time it was. And what about you? Do you 
and I, do we know what time it is? Psalm said he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You know, a lot of these statements by Solomon, you have to kind of read several times. It's like, what is he saying? But, but I think, in other words, we know that, that we were made for eternity. We understand uh, that God has an eternal plan. But we can't fully discover the nuts and bolts of that plan. We, we don't really know because the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us. Man is always curious. We want to know the secret plan of God. But the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. Okay? And if, and if that's true, then don't try to delve into the secret plan of God. But it says the things revealed belong to us. The, the things revealed in His Word. The Scriptures. And the Bible says, first of all, uh, that... Uh, the t- there is a time to be saved. Do you know when that time is? You know when it is. Today. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Back in the, in, in the, uh, a few hundred years ago, when, uh, when men preached, predestination and sovereignty of God from the pulpits, people used to wonder, am I one of the elect? And they would try to find out if I'm elect. Well, God just says, you know, now's the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. That's, that's, we go by the scriptures. We, don't, we can't find the secret plan of God. You want to know if you're elect? Uh, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then you can look back and say, well, I guess I am uh, one of God's elect. But if you or anyone turns, uh, uh, puts off turning from their sins and coming to Christ to receive Him as Lord and Savior, um, then they need to stop and, and realize today is the day of salvation. Uh, today's the day to trust in, in the saving, finished work of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah put it this way Seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He's near. What time is it, though, if you're already a believer, if you're already saved, what time is it for you? Well, it's also today. According to, to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, part of that is what happens in the preaching of the word. The, the preacher is exhorting you uh, to turn from sin and to turn unto God. And that will keep you from growing hardened by sin. Uh, to always be confessing it. Uh, to, to always be turning away from it unto God. So when is the time to do that? Well, um, it's today. Right? Is there some sin that you need to let go of to make a clean break with? And you say, well, I mean, I'm, I'm intending to do that. Do it. Do it first in your heart uh, that you take decided, you, you, you make a decision and say, I, I am making a break with this. Uh, no more. No more. And uh, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Romans 8, it says, it says if by the Spirit, by the Spirit's help uh, and power, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if you have the power of the Spirit, and you do as a Christian, 
you can put to death the deeds of the body. You can overcome the sin that so easily entangles you. Not that it will, you'll never be tempted again. You will. But you uh, and we, together, the Bible says, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, uh, that's what we need to think uh, about uh, our sin. So lay yourself before the Lord, plead for his mercy and the grace of the Spirit, and you will walk in victory. Well, what time is it? It's time to redeem the time. Ephesians 3 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time for the days are evil. So we, we redeem the time by walking more closely with the Lord. And, and we do that uh, so that we, we will be a witness to others. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom to, toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. So we're to redeem the time as far as our walk with God, and we do that so we can redeem the time with those around us who don't know the Lord, uh, so we can witness to them. Well, we only have so much time left. None of us knows how long that is. Basically, we can all say it's short. And no matter what age you are, uh, that time is not very long. Now's the time to start talking about the Lord. You know, remember that? That verse in, in, in the first eight verses, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Well, I think it's time to speak. I think we're, you know, as far as witnessing, I think we are silent far too much. But I believe it's time to speak up for Christ. I think it's time in our world uh, for us to speak up for the souls of those who are lost. Speak to them of Jesus Christ. We know he's the answer. Right? Well, for everything there's a season, a time, for every matter under heaven. Remember, God's controlling those seasons, those times. He's appointed those times in your life. Do you know what time it is? Do you know uh, what time it is? Not always. Uh, And we don't always have to. But we do know, as as again, as Scripture reveals, it's time to trust Him. uh, To live by faith. No, we can't know the secret plan of God, but we can know God who has planned it all. So it's time for us to know God better uh, to, to, and then to make him known. It's the only way you can make him known is if you know him very well. And one day the Lord will call us home at the right time. And at that time, um, this gonna, you know, time will be no more. Suffering will be no more. And we'll be forever with the Lord. Then it will be a time to shout, to sing, to dance, to feast, and to laugh for all eternity. We have a lot to look forward to. And that will never end. That's going to be a long time, except it's not time, it's eternity. Um, And then we'll be with the Lord, glorifying our sovereign God who planned it all from the foundation of the world. So... um, everything there's a season for every time a purpose under heaven and God's the appointer of all these things let's put our trust in him let's pray Lord I thank you uh, for your uh, holy and